Hi, this is Renya Nanthapantala, founder of For a Green Environment, and I want to thank you for joining us today for another episode of Women in Environmental Science. This podcast is to inspire other people and to educate them about the work researchers in environmental science are doing, specifically the issues they face in the industry, the solutions they make, the roadblocks they push through, and most importantly, what they are learning to teach the society to keep the environment clean. Keep listening to hear this episode of Women in Environmental Science. Here we go, for real. <laughs> so, um, hi, uh, welcome to Women in Environmental Science. I'm Serenia Nantapuntala, and I have Dr. Heidi Stolzer with me. So thank you so much for coming to my podcast today, Dr. Heidi. Um, and just to understand the work you've been doing on things like climate change and the mountain sciences, could you elaborate on, um, on, on, on the work you're doing? Yeah, so I decided Oh, I don't know. I was maybe sixth grade when I decided I wanted to be a scientist. And I told people I wanted to be an astronaut, but that was mostly because, I don't know, I didn't really have a pick. And it seemed to get an incredibly interesting reaction from people every time I told them astronaut. Um, but that's not the way I rolled. Um, my focus, my interest has been on life on this planet. Mm -hmm. um, life on this planet um, because I think it's fascinating, it's awe-inspiring, it's, um, you know, why, you know, the path I traveled, I thought I wanted to be a marine biologist, and I really, really love studying oceans, and I love mm -hmm. being by the ocean, but I get seasick really easily, <laughs> and I learned that by taking an oceanography class as a junior in college, um, and the thing that captivated me most in undergrad was that I took a course where the title of the course included a, a, the phrase, an analysis of global change. And, and that was in 1992. And you know, we, were, we knew what we were doing at that time to the planet, um, but it wasn't, and we didn't, not as many people knew. We didn't see, and the, the impacts weren't as evident to every human. And, and I'd say that they're pretty much evident to every human now. There's almost no one that these big global changes going on on our planet doesn't touch um, mm -hmm. and isn't touched by. And there's almost no place on our planet that isn't touched. We can find evidence of human caused change in the middle of Greenland, in the you know, middle of Antarctica, um, and in our own backyards. And so what I liked about the idea, even as a sophomore in college, of an analysis of global change was that I thought the focus could be, should be on if we know enough. If we know enough, then we'll make different choices. And we're not seeing that pattern. And so that's another part that we can have as part of this discussion. But that was where I was at as a, um, I guess that was 19, 20 year old, was I wanted to study and understand an analysis of global change. And then I ended up with mountains because I get seasick and I don't get um, altitude sickness. Yeah. So when I came out to Colorado as a junior in college, um, I came out to Colorado for the first time in 1993. I spent a summer here and I could go to the tops of the peaks in Colorado um, and work on high elevation hillsides. And I didn't get, I don't get cold easy and I don't get altitude sickness easy. So I'm all good I, there. Yeah, I can't <laughs> say the same for myself. If it goes down one degree, I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> I'll like stack myself up with like five blankets and <laughs> look like I'm living in the Arctic. 
But um, yeah, so that's actually very interesting because um, I, I really like how you talked about like um, lots of people know about it and are touched by it or have been touched by it. So like um, I, I, I've noticed that like um, you traveled to like Colorado, Alaska, Greenland and like China to understand these mountain ecosystems. So what have you learned from the people in these areas and like how are they impacted by the climate change that we're creating down here? You just asked the most incredible question <laughs> because um, it gets at so many things. I was trained as a natural system scientist. Mm -hmm. So my expertise is in studying the biology, the physics, the chemistry of uh, the geology of, of cold, remote mountain highland places. Mm -hmm. and, um, and yet the question you asked is what are the people they're experiencing? And that's a social science question, which I don't mind that you asked because I always feel the need to um, meet people and talk to people mm -hmm. in the places that I, I go to work. Um, but uh, we need to find more opportunities where um, more social system science research takes place and where social system and natural system scientists are working together and we're working together with local communities. And so mm -hmm. the other piece and, and idea that comes to mind is there's a whole nother field of science that's emerging. It's called community science. Right. And yeah. your question gets at community science. And given that you grew up and were in Flint, um, you know, Flint is a story of community science. Mm -hmm. Flint is a story of local people knowing what was happening to them, seeing the consequences and the health risks for children and saying, we're gonna do something about that. And seeing that, 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 are, that knowledge came from the community that didn't come from outside the community. So, so similarly, your question is a community science question because you know, what do people, the places that I go? Well, in rural Colorado, you can find people across the whole political spectrum that will tell you there is less snow. Everyone here knows we have less snow, that the snow covers the ground for less, um, less of the year, and that that is an issue for water supply. Yeah. When you go to China, um, it's a little bit different. Um, it's a little bit different. I, I had a chance to work and engage with uh, Chinese scientists. Um, and there, the story is um, a little bit different for snow and, and how things are changing. The region I was in on the Tibetan Plateau, they're mm -hmm. getting more precipitation, not less. They are getting less snow, but their snowfall is more varied than it is in Colorado. Colorado, we get snow, we get big snow, we get deep snow, and the highest elevations still get deep snow. We don't, we have so much snow in Colorado that we can lose some snow and still have lots of snow, if that makes sense. And that's yeah. an important thing, that's a buffer. We've got a great buffer in Colorado, but that doesn't mean that we're not seeing the impacts on people and populations here. In China, um, the snowfall is less persistent in winter. So it mm -hmm. snows and then it melts and then it snows and then it melts, at least the region that I was in but they're getting more precipitation and some of that is coming as rain and coming as rain in the summer. And then they have melting permafrost because they have more permafrost than we have in Colorado. Right. And that is water. And so they're actually seeing plants grow more. One of the most fascinating parts about studying mountains 
is that we wouldn't expect to see and, and understand the same story happening every mountain region around the world. Some of the same things are happening, but some different things are happening because some places like the Tibetan Plateau have melting permafrost. Colorado mountains, um, we have some permafrost, it's melting, but it's not much water compared to how much water isn't here because of less snow. Yeah, so global warming is helping the people in China and then... But that's, that's, it's not helping the people in China. It's leading to increased plant growth, which mm -hmm. may or may not be beneficial. Um, okay. And so then that really gets at the question you asked me, which is we have to talk to people, right? We have mm -hmm. to talk to the people who live there and say, is more plants helpful? Or are there other things that are coming that are also happening at the same time mm -hmm. that are creating different problems. You can have more plants grow and still have a problem. <laughs> absolutely. No, yeah, absolutely. Yep. <laughs> it's so, complicated, right? That's, yeah. That's <laughs> so many factors are like going into like, is it good or is it not? Like, you don't actually yep. know until you look at every single one of the factors. So I guess my next question would be, how are the um, animals getting impacted by climate change? Like specifically in the mountainous regions, because I think it's very different than what we like, they're, they're very pristine um, than what we see down here. So how are yeah. they impacted? Um, it depends on the mountain region mm -hmm. um, and it depends on the animal. And um, the, the work that I did with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change was mm -hmm. to write a report on the changing cryosphere on our planet nice. and the impacts on ecosystems including animals of a changing cryosphere and the cryosphere is all the frozen water on our planet which includes the glaciers the snow and the permafrost um, mm -hmm. sea ice too but there's no sea ice on the tops of mountains right. um, so um, we didn't have to study that part um, and uh, and when I when I stepped into the space of working on that report my first thought was about when ice melts, glaciers mount in the mountains, there's mm -hmm. new habitat. I thought about it as because now there's land. Where there once was ice, there's now land. And where there's now land, maybe there's enough new plant growth. Maybe there's enough new salt licks. I don't know. I just I kept thinking it's new habitat and animals would take advantage of that, the wildlife in the mountains. Mm -hmm. um, and what I came to realize in working on the report is that um, ice is habitat. And we haven't done a really good job of understanding that. The global mm -hmm. science community hasn't done a really good job of understanding that. But there are research papers that have been done, um, including in review articles that have been done. And I found a couple that I cited when I worked on that part of the report. Animals use ice. They use that icy landscape as a way to go from place to place where otherwise there might be a big ravine or a canyon and cliffs. And instead, there's a glacier that they can walk across because they've adapted to walk across that. There are birds in Peru mm -hmm. that are glacier obligate nesters. They put their nests on the glacier to um, have a safe place away from predators. Um, and so um, I started to reframe my thinking that as we lose the ice and as we lose the snow, we're changing these places in ways that some species will have less of the habitat that they need. Mm -hmm. And yes, there will be other species that have new habitat and more habitat. Mm -hmm. And so then we have to dive down into which species, right? And it becomes a question of which species. 
and I know the species in my region the best. Um, the best opportunity I've had to learn about species in some of these other regions is through an assignment I have in one of my introductory environmental biology classes. Mm -hmm. And I ask students, pick a species, species anywhere in the world, any species of interest to you, and look into and understand how is climate changing for that species? Right. What are its habitat needs? And where and what are the consequences of those, those environmental changes? And so students have picked to study um, jumping spiders in um, Asia, and snow leopards are really popular, and um, tapir, these, um, um, I keep forgetting, there's so many cool animals that when you give an assignment and open an assignment like that to um, um, a bunch of college students, um, it is so incredible what opportunity that is for me to learn about animals that I'm like, wait a sec, what is a tapir? And there's a South American animal in the mountains that um, has, if I remember right from this student's presentation, because it was really good, but it was two years ago, more habitat, but shifting habitat. And in time, um, it could be less habitat. So I think that's the other important story that mm -hmm. Things can go in one direction of being beneficial for 10 years, 20 years, 40 years, but maybe not for 100 and maybe not for 200. And so we have to keep our, our eye on distant horizons. We have to keep our, our, our scientific focus on what are the consequences for these wildlife and for people 200 years from now not just 10 years from now. And we all know that, right? Like yeah. intuitively we know that, but our planning isn't always aligned with what we really know. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. That's, that's, that's actually, I never knew that, um, that ice was like so, so like helpful to these different species. I was always like, well, they need like, they need the area that I'm literally living around right now. Like they need all these resources, but they, I mean like obviously they need resources, but I never, thought that ice was a resource that could be used, yep. right? I know, it's cool, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I was like, um, well, uh, I was like thinking ice was like a blocker, if, you, if that makes sense, like a block to like getting to a better life. Um, I hope that makes sense. Um, yeah. But that is- That's that the is thinking cool. I had too when I went into writing and then I was like, wait, I need to accept the information that I'm reading and change mm -hmm. the story. The story isn't the story that was in my mind. And I think that's also a really, another really important piece as we talk about what is science. Um, you know, I, I, I study the environment um, mm -hmm. and have specialized in that space, but what is science? Science is a, is a space in which we, we as scientists are trained in coming up with good ideas, informed ideas, and always being willing to change our minds. We have to be willing to change our minds because that's the whole process is that we gather information and then we say, oh, look, that idea wasn't the one that had merit. Um, and then we reform those ideas. Um, and I don't know, I personally think that a lot of people see science as more um, rigid than it is. Yeah, it's actually absolutely. quite adaptable. Mm -hmm, definitely. Like um, you think this one thing, but then this completely new factor comes into play. Um, and that just completely changes everything. And you have to like reshape the way you're trying to think. Absolutely. That totally makes yep. sense to me. Yeah. And I would say that when I was younger, I think I might've thought science was like, you find a problem. The solution is right there. Everything's good. Write a paper on it. You're done. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> no. <laughs> I don't have the students in my classes write many papers because of exactly what you just described. In my classes, we have lots of discussions because mm -hmm. I think discussion is more fluid yeah. and um, it brings in more people's ideas. And um, yeah, um, in presentation, I really like not just discussion, but presentations where um, students have the opportunity to see each other's ideas, see what they've been working on. We all try to do different things. That was, so there are COVID ad adaptations, right? We had to all adapt to COVID this yeah. fall as we took classes um, and taught classes. And I teach a class in the fall term, Environmental Science 100 at Fort mm -hmm. Lewis College. And the best part of the class is field trips. Yeah, Field trips course. during a pandemic are not a good idea. So I didn't want personally to be in a van with students, even if we were all masked with the windows down, I was like, just seems yeah. like a risk that we could um, avoid. So we adapted and um, students did independent projects, mm -hmm. independent projects in groups. So they worked in groups. Some students studied fire impacts, some students studied river health, some students studied high elevation biodiversity mm -hmm. and how in the beetle killed forests, there are more species, not less than in the healthy forests, which is kind of an interesting result, right? Mm -hmm. um, but more species can live in places high in the mountains that aren't super shaded. So you remove, it, it doesn't mean that the dead trees is a good thing. Right, it just course. means that we're looking for all the patterns of what's changing the mountains. So one group focused on that. And we just on Thursday last week did the presentations and it was so fun for students. So, so that meant only groups of two or three students had to be in cars together and masked. And we followed all of the COVID pandemic mm -hmm. recommendations for best practice, but students still got to get outside. That was what was important to me. How can we, how can we still get outside and do environmental science? The other thing we could have done is just have all the labs be on campus. And even though we have this gorgeous mountain campus, um, mm -hmm. the campus um, has a lot of uh, natural spaces on it, the campus mm -hmm. where I teach. Um, and even though it's a gorgeous campus with great mountain spaces um, and near a river that we could have gone to study, it's still kind of fun to like go a half hour, 40 minutes away from campus and up into the wildlands of the mountains. Yeah, so absolutely. we did that too. I'm actually taking this class, like the Penn State, like master watershed thing. Um, and we, it's, it's not good at all because there's like 60 people in that class. And all of us were like, we were like, so like um, during the class, we go into like breakout sessions and like chat with each other because, you know, we need that. Um, and and um, <laughs> we were and, and we, we had this one assignment, which was to um, do a stream survey. And it's very hard to do that without having someone tell you like what to look for and where to look for this stuff. So I was like trying to find like, oh, where is like, I, I, I don't know, I forgot um, a bunch of things on that on the paper, but like. And we were talking about how how nice it would be to like actually be in person and go visit these streams and like look at okay that's damaged what can we do to like help like fix that so that I, yes. I totally get it I totally get it trust yes me. well you're gonna have to come out to Colorado Serenia you know that um, the streams <laughs> out here are pretty incredible and then you can see the we do we have damaged streams even in a state mm -hmm. like Colorado where we think about it being so. Um, protected and pristine and we have national parks and and all of that um, you know there's a mining history and right. it's the mining history um, a little bit of the climate change and and some other factors that that have impacted our streams and uh, and 
and that's the work to do. The work yeah. to do is restore, restore and mm -hmm. um, heal our planet. And with healing our planet, heal ourselves, um, develop that healing connection, I feel like, um, between ourselves and our planet. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I was uh, a couple weeks ago in October, I think, I was like planting trees to help restore this, um, this riparian like buffer around our, one of our like the Shuko River, somewhere, somewhere around that. So that was very interesting. Um, so I just, I'm wondering, like you say that um, all of us have like, should like have um, uh, a part in like trying to make the earth a better place, right? So what are some green things that you may do like personally or like, um, like, I, I, I don't know, like not use plastic <laughs> bottles and things like, things like that. Like just what, what are some things that you do? Yeah, it's a good question. The, the individual changes that we make in our own lives are important. Mm -hmm. Systems level changes are more important because oftentimes um, there will be, for example, in my community, in my region, people who have um, enough wealth are working to develop um, renewable energy technologies on their homes. So right. installing solar panels, maybe going geothermal for their home. There's lots of ways that we can improve how we use energy within our own homes. But that, that's only something that some people can do, right? Like it's mm -hmm. expensive to put solar panels on your home um, and some people don't own their home. And so um, where they're living is, is you know, a rental property. Um, and, uh, and so what should they do? Um, so, so we have to see that, you know, we make the best choices we can, um, choosing actions that are consistent with our values um, and, um, and then, and that best utilize our, our, our strengths is the other way I think about it. Mm -hmm. So you're going to kind of laugh that <laughs> when I say like one of the main things I do for, um, for my environmental activism is speak up, like is share my expertise and see that scientists should um, be humanists and activists as well as scientists. We shouldn't just put on our science hat and then stay in a space of it's somebody else's problem to solve. Like I've done my job. Um, I'd say that the, one of the biggest disappointments about the training I have, and I'm now 26 years into my career from when I started as an undergrad, um, actually grad school is 26 years ago. Undergrad is 30. So I started undergrad in 1990. And um, one of my biggest disappointments about the natural system science training that I have in environmental science is I'm really good at pointing out problems, right? Like I measure things and I'm like, ooh, that shouldn't be that way. Ooh, oh my God, wait, 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 we need more water. We need more snow. The plants are, you know, drought stressed. That's what we're seeing in Colorado in the mountains. Mm -hmm. And um, there are less wildflowers sometimes. So, you know, those are the type of things that we can point out. Um, but we have to have um, more opportunity to see that, that, that talking about it and, and even more than that, ooh, I just caught myself. You just, I do share what I know. Mm -hmm. Even more important than that, big picture more important, is that I listen to other people, that, I, that each of us as a scientist has an important role to put ourselves in spaces where we listen to other people and what their perspective is. The indigenous people, um, the local people, um, Recently, I wrote an op-ed um, for Colorado Politics 
about a conversation I had with a hunter from Wisconsin mm -hmm. and a local from um, this mountain town um, about an hour, hour and a half from where I live. And the time we spent listening to one another um, because we did, we each came into that conversation with different perspectives. I was looking for water because of the wildfires in Colorado. I was like, how dry is it in the mountains? And mm -hmm. so I went up to the mountains to look for water and it wasn't there. It was really dry. That's why wildfires were wi widespread in October in Colorado. Um, but the hunter was looking for elk and the local was looking for bighorn sheep. And so we were all looking for something different, but we could have a really fun conversation and, uh, and kind of connect to one another by having that conversation. So, so that's what I do. I engage in conversations. This one with you is fantastic. Um, and um, I recycle, um, I buy, here's another important one. I, this is kind of bold for me to say on a mm -hmm. podcast. I have chosen to continue to eat meat. So, mm -hmm. so I know that that's a controversial part um, mm -hmm. of where and how we should each be making a difference on our planet. Um, the, the, the beef in, is at my house. It's in a freezer. And I bought that um, beef from a local rancher who's an alumni of the college that I teach at. And she learned where and how um, through her own investigations and her knowledge as a scientist. She's trained as an environmental scientist. Mm -hmm. And she put those pieces together and she manages the cattle on her land in a way that increases soil health. And we're starting to see that become more and more of, of the conversation is maybe it's not, we can't and shouldn't eat a lot of meat, but maybe some meat if we're also raising cattle on the land in ways that help restore ecosystems is part of what we can be doing. And so, mm -hmm. so I did, I, I that's, yeah. that's what I did. I bought a cow from her. <laughs> that's okay. I think, I think, okay. So as I'm, I'm vegetarian and I don't hate, nor I love meat. So I'm like in this unbiased section. Um, so yeah. I think it's completely fine. People, people like, if I tell someone I'm vegetarian, they're like, oh my gosh, you're missing out on so much on life. And I get that, that, that they, they love that. They love me. And I don't think that um, trying to fix the egos, like fix the earth, like from our, from like the things that we've made should be like taking away um, on things that you love. You should like, like things that I love, like, like you said, are talking. I talk a lot, if you can tell. <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of why I'm doing this podcast. I'm trying to help other people like get informed by this thing. And that's something I love. So cooking, like that's something you could do. You could cook with more green things. There's something that everybody can do. Like, yeah. like if someone, if someone loves biking, they could bike to work every day instead of taking a car. So there, yeah. I think there's so many like different things you can do and it's not just one thing. So, and then you could do, you can do yeah. what you love and that will still help the planet. And ranching is a really important part of the economy of the rural region I live in. So, mm -hmm. um, so people who have my expertise um, don't often live in places as rural as where I live. And so that's worth highlighting. I don't, I don't, I live in a, a town of 15,000 people in a county of 25,000 people in a region where we are the biggest community and biggest county for miles around. And so where and how and what is, is the economy of a rural region? Part of it is, is ranching. And mm -hmm. so it's important to see that um, I almost never, almost never buy seafood because that doesn't make sense. I live in rural Colorado. 
Um, <laughs> and I do eat a lot of green things too. And I go to the farmer's market and these days it's the, uh, the carrots and the beets. Oh my God, local carrots and local beets taste unlike anything else in the grocery store. <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. Um, but what you said about like speaking up, um, I really, I, I would never laugh. <laughs> uh, like I said, I love talking and I definitely think it's important because I think um, citizens, like just people think that scientists are like, they're, they're extremely knowledgeable. They probably have like, um, they probably cannot just speak to us like normal people. But as you can see, we can talk and I can understand you very well. And I'm understanding the research you're doing. So I think it's important for scientists to be able to share their research with with the citizens and help them understand like what's going on what are the problems and what what are some ways you can actually fix these problems and that's very cool so thank you thank for you. saying that <laughs> so um i know that you like study in the mountains um study the mountains and you live in them so why do you choose to be a local scientist <laughs> that is such a great question um it wasn't an easy choice only in that um, the way that the system for advancing in science works is that my PhD is from University of Colorado Boulder. Mm -hmm. Then I worked as a postdoctoral scientist at Colorado State University. And then neither one of those schools, it's, it's not that easy for me to get a job at one of those schools. There's sort of a culture in science that if this is the school where you trained at, we need to send you out into the world and out in the world, you will find the successes, um, you know, and, and there's something good about that too. Um, the, the small, you know, um, bird learning to fly and leave the nest. Um, but for me, um, it's not seeing and being where I do research just during the period of time when I do research, it's seeing and being there all the time. It's knowing what winter was like, even though most of my field research was in summer, is in summer. And it's not just what my experience with winter is like, it is, you know, a big part of being a local scientist is that because of what we've been talking about that I speak up and I give talks, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll be in the grocery store, I'll be um, um, standing in line at the farmer's market, I'll, I'll be at a, one of my kids' sporting activities and people will be like, wait, don't you study climate change? And it's each and every time that happens because it's a small town, right? So people know each other and, mm -hmm, you know, and yeah. I'm giving these talks. And so people see me and they're like, wait, don't you? And then I'm always like, like there's a moment of what are they going to say next? Are they going to tell me that they don't believe in climate change, that I've got it all wrong because that's quite possible. Yes. Usually yeah. um, we're curious. Humans and people are curious. It's one of our characteristics and our traits. And so usually the first thing that comes up isn't, especially because it's face-to-face, -face. This, this is a moment that isn't a Facebook moment. This isn't a, you know, a, I don't know this person, I'll never see them again moment. This is a, she lives down the street from me, she's my neighbor kind of moment, or, mm -hmm. you know, across the hillside um, kind of moment. And, uh, and so people will engage with me in really constructive ways, and they'll ask an honest question. And the honest question may be, what about when it was really cold? What about when it rained in March? What mm -hmm. about when? And they'll ask me these questions about local regional weather events of the past year, of the past two years, of the past five years. And that I was here living here 
I know what they're talking about. It isn't just data. I'm like, oh yeah, I remember when that happened. It rained a lot in March. Um, in the winter of 2019, it rained a lot in March. Rained enough that there was rain on snow events in our town and rainbows. So rainbows, snow, and rain. And it was beautiful. It's, it's worth saying that, that, mm -hmm. that I knew the rain on snow means that snow melts earlier, means that we're getting a big pulse of water into our river systems in March when mm -hmm. no one is planting their crops, yeah. when it's not a good season to grow the produce that, that the region depends on um, or have a hay meadow where your cows are gonna be. Um, but it was still beautiful. And, and so we could see that beauty, we can appreciate that beauty together. And then we can have a conversation about, and, and the particular person who asked me that question, um, it was clear that he's a good 20 or 30 years older than me and had probably grown up so I've been living in the region I live in for 12 years. Mm -hmm. I've been living in Colorado for 30, 26 years, um, the region I live in for 12 years. But it was pretty clear he's probably been living here his whole life. And so I asked him when he's like, isn't it kind of weird that it rained a lot in March? I'm like, I think so. What do you think? And then it's an opportunity for that conversation. He said, I think it's weird. And so then we got to have a conversation about all of the reasons why it would be better if that was snow. And right. there was no, there was no, animosity, there was no disagreement. So, and, and I feel like all of that's more likely if, if I'm the scientist who lives here rather than the scientist who um, um, lives in, in, I don't know, Dallas, Texas and flies in. I don't know, is there a big school in Dallas, Texas? But you get what I mean. Yeah, you know, absolutely. It, it's, yeah, I just, there's a connection, human mm -hmm. connection that's really important. Absolutely. And I think, I, I personally think everyone has a connection to the environment and they just need to find it like mm -hmm. um and they need to hold on to that love and do 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 like look into it you know um but that's that's actually very cool because usually um when i speak to people they're like oh i i just moved here and i saw from the data that there was a lot of rainfall so you know this is not good or this is good or whatnot um and that's very cool. Like you, you really, you, you know what happened and you felt it and you can, you can assess like what's going to happen next. And, and you can share that with the people that live there. And I think that that's spectacular. <laughs> and so, then a, a key other piece of the listening is that uh, I live in a region where, um, um, where the lands are, are the lands of native peoples. I mean, we all do in the U S and mm -hmm. so it's the Ute lands, the Hopi lands, the, um, Zuni, Apache, Apache and um, the Diné people whose lands is the region where um, my community currently is. And um, that one of the things that has been really invaluable to me as an educator at a school that is a Native American serving institution mm -hmm. is that opportunity to have conversations with um, students who have um, ancestors who've lived here for thousands of years. And, and so the conversations we have in our classrooms um, and these days outside on campus in tents, um, then um, the students will go back to their families and ask elders um, questions inspired by the environmental science they're learning at school. And then they'll bring those ideas to our classroom too, those ideas in the, the thousand year history, the 10,000 year history of this region um, um, for environmental change. And, and so, yeah, it's really, really important that we create those spaces to hear long-term perspectives of people. And that was something you asked me about early on. What did the local people say? 
Yeah. <laughs> they say it's different now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and um, so I lived in Michigan for about 12, no, for my whole life. I mean, I don't remember anything when I was born, obviously, but um, uh, for 13 years, I think I used to live there and then we moved here. But like, I've noticed that um, now, like it is a lot warmer in November than it was back then. And I can like, I, I felt it, but yeah, it's just, it's just having that connection. And yeah. I guess my next question would be, um, what, so I understand that like when we first started talking, you were like, you're in your like fifth or sixth grade, you were wanted to be like an astronaut, but when did, how did you know that you wanted to be a scientist? <laughs> and like, for me, like I told you, um, I, I, I used to live in Flint. I'm sorry. We used to live near Flint and we, and I, and I understood like the importance of water. So did you have like kind of that moment for you where you were like, I need to do science because of this event? Yeah. So it's funny. I never really wanted to be an astronaut. I just liked watching the reaction I got when I told people (laughs) I wanted to be an astronaut. And so let's put that in context. It was 1986. Um, I'm female yeah. and, uh, and we still didn't have that many women moving into those kind of very visible, very um, prominent roles as scientists in the world. So I picked something, you know, prominent like astronaut, right? Like we mm-hmm. all look up to astronauts as doing this extraordinary human feat. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and then I watched reactions and, um, there's lots of reasons why it, it was not something I really wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, where and how, um, I'm going to admit that, that the initial reason was because I did well in math and science classes Mm -hmm. and I did well in math and science classes, um, because I have a photographic memory and I remember taking a test in seventh grade that was given to us by the teacher because it was punishment. We had not been behaving well in class. We had all been talking too much. And so it was a pop test. And suddenly we had to write out all of the body systems, Mm -hmm. digestive, circulatory, um, nervous, of different phyla in the animal kingdom. And it was a table and it was like one, you know, this way, one this way, and then fill in all the blanks. And um, I got like a 99 on it. And I got like a 99 on this pop test that came out of nowhere, not because um, I was so good at the science, but because literally I could picture the table. Like in my head, I could Mm -hmm. picture the table. The table was there. It was in my head. I was just copying. It was as if like, and that's just like a, a mental, like, thing. That's not a, you're good at something. And so, Mm -hmm. so I was motivated because I did well in math and science classes and could fit the model of how math and science has long been taught in our country. And yet as an educator, I can see how many students in my classes are exceptional at science, but don't multiple choice test well. They can't just get a pop test and do well on a pop test. And so you know, the space that you're asking is where and how do we create many different ways that we teach science, many different ways that we engage in science and um, become inspired. So the inspired story, what inspired me? 
every time I did something new um, and pushed further into a space of discomfort, mm -hmm. um, expanding my horizons as a scientist, I was like, oh, what can I do next? So, so, so this was one of the things that I did that was just, so as an undergrad, I came out to Colorado for the summer and I'd been studying um, with the lab that I was working with, um, but not spending a night in the mountains by myself. So I was living in a cabin at a mountain field station and I got it in my head that if I was gonna be a mountain scientist, um, I needed to know how to camp by myself on a mountain hillside. And so I did it. I like, and I, it was totally like living and growing comfortable with fear. I was afraid. I had never camped by myself. And I hiked, I don't know, four miles up into a place called Hasley Basin. And I popped my tent down on the side of a hill and I took off my backpack. And there were multiple moments that night that I was like, what am I doing? <laughs> you can be a mountain scientist and never camp alone. First of all, there was no reason why I had to do that. Most mountain scientists don't camp alone. <laughs> um, but um, that's why I decided to be a scientist. And just, just so, you know, going to the Arctic, um, going to the Antarctic, going to the Tibetan Plateau, um, going to, to remote parts of Greenland and spending hours by myself in a landscape where I knew there were polar bears, where a polar bear could be. Um, all of that was pushing the horizons and, and I found that it increased the powers of observation. Each time that you step into a space where you're a little bit more concerned about your safety, mm -hmm. um, yeah. I was more observant. I spent more time looking around me and thinking about what I saw and and, that's ultimately what science is, right? Is being mm -hmm. very observant and seeing the world and taking it all in um, and then making sense of it. So yeah, I don't know. I love the adventure. It's a big part of it. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. When you said that, I'm just picturing myself like going downstairs in the middle of the night and like all the lights are off. I'd say I'm doing science because I am observing every single little sound. <laughs> yep. I am not. I'm like, I, I can't do well with the dark, um, but, it's, <laughs> but it's fun. No, yeah, it's fun. Try to look for a cookie and <laughs> listening to every single little creaky noise in the house. Yeah. Um, so you, you said that you went to the Arctic and the Anar and Antarctic, like the polar regions. And I think that is fascinating because so many people do not have this chance to actually observe what's going on in these in these regions right like um so i was i was recent i was talking to another person um um on, on on our podcast and she went to the arctic and we were talking about how there was like the aerosols there that like um like there's these dust particles that are on the snow making making it like darker so that the sunlight like gets absorbed absorbed more and then um it heats up and that whole process starts so like um what have you observed from going to the Arctic, uh, the polar regions? Yeah, so um, there is so much incredible life mm -hmm. at the poles. Yeah. And when we see polar landscapes or we hear people who are focused on exploration to extract resources from a polar region, they focus and tell us 
these are desolate places. These are places devoid of life. These are places with few species, with, you know, you know, there's sort of this whole conversation that gets wrapped up in trying to convince people who have never been and may never go why it's okay to wreck these places <laughs> and why and how what's important is the resource that can benefit us. And in mm. the Antarctic, that might be the krill, in um, um, the diamonds, the oil, the gas, the, you know, there's, there's an immense amount of, of valuable resources. Mm -hmm. There is even more value in keeping those landscapes healthy. Absolutely. And healthy landscapes in cold places, you can't um, alter the soil, alter the air, alter the water, and think they're going to stay healthy. They're not. And, and in addition to all of that, um, and, you know, the caribou, the lichen, the algae, the penguins, the, 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 you know, and I'm throwing out Antarctic and Arctic at the same time, because yeah. we kind of started with that big, broad polar um, 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 one piece that's different is that in the Arctic, there are native people and native people of the Arctic region um, are losing access to the resources they need. They're losing opportunities to have and sustain the lifestyles as um, those lifestyles have developed. Um, they're losing the earth underneath their homes in some cases as coastal regions erode and communities that are at the edge of the coast um, fall into the sea. And um, in the Antarctic, it's a different story because there aren't indigenous people of the Antarctic. Right. And instead, the Antarctic is a place where we can see global cooperation across countries that has um, created a space where we're trying to work together for the, the greater good of, of land and health and planet. Um, and we still have work to do because, for example, um, efforts to uh, create new marine protected areas in the Antarctic um, they're still in process. There's some that have been created. The Ross Sea is a success, um, but the Antarctic Peninsula one, the, the, the discussions for that just happened and there wasn't a lot of progress made on, on securing um, a marine protected area on the Antarctic Peninsula, which is the part of Antarctica that comes up towards uh, Argentina and Chile. Mm -hmm. so, so we've got work to do uh, and, and yeah, we should be looking to see the life and the benefits of those uh, ecosystems being healthy. Right, absolutely. And also like um, people don't realize how important the Arctic and Antarctic are, are, are for like regulating the global climate, right? Like the whole conveyor belt thing. And um, there was like this, was it the OSNAP thing? Oh, what's it? It's like, um, and there's like a foundation that's like, working on research on like the global conveyor belt and and how how like the polar regions are important for it it has like a it has a fun name except i forgot it um it is but, what something we cover in my class so even though we're a landlocked college um we mm -hmm. do cover the global conveyor belt and uh we just did the twilight zone so the twilight zone in the ocean is actually pretty fascinating too and absolutely. i know very very little about it but i'm absolutely fascinated by the idea that uh that that movement of life up and down in a dark-ish part of the ocean is an important part of getting carbon stored into our ocean. 
Um, and a student asked, it was a really great topic of conversation, a student said, wait a sec, I thought carbon in the ocean was bad. And, um, and we talked about how easy it is to get the, the, the biogeochemical stories of our planet mixed up. So carbon dioxide dissolving in the ocean that leads to ocean acidification has negative health consequences for species in the ocean and ultimately for us corals are dying because of that right um, but carbon storage in organic forms so when a little phytoplankton takes up that molecule of co2 and pumps it into a sugar and then that sugar tucks gets tucked away into a structure that gets eaten by a zooplankton and it gets eaten by a fish that gets eaten by a whale and sudden whales eat fish right I didn't what? just, some, whales eat fish, right? Some whales do, some whales do, some whales do. I like, I'm like, I'm not a whale expert um, by any stretch of the means. And that carbon, when that gets stored in the ocean is good carbon to have in the ocean because it's, it's, it's reversing what we did with fossil fuel burning. So right. good carbon yeah. and bad carbon in the ocean. <laughs> yeah, we get, we, I, I didn't, I didn't realize that. I was always like, ocean, uh, uh, ocean acidification. Um, and yeah, that's great. So like, um, I really like how we talk about like how important the polar regions are. So is that how, how so why, I'm wondering how are mountains valuable to the earth's, earth's like just, just the earth in general it could be the climate or just anything. All right. You ready? This is yep. what, this is, now you're like, you're like in my zone. This is like, um, exactly what I think about the richness. Um, there is, because of the unique characteristics of mountain regions. As we look across mountain regions across the whole planet, there is an immense amount of biodiversity. Animals, plants, and all of the microorganisms that we don't even yet understand um, because we're only getting to a place where we understand and have um, more affordable genetic techniques to mm -hmm. understand the wealth of the biodiversity in mountain regions. Their richness of, of diversity of life in mountain regions is possible because they've been refuge. Right. So as the earth's climate changes, mountain regions are a place of refuge. They're a place where when the cycle, the, the cold species can hang out, that as the earth warms up, it creates a space for, for species to move up in elevation um, so that it's protecting some species. And then there's just so much topographic complexity that um, it keeps, the gene pools separate from um, within a species long enough that new species evolve. And so we end up you know, with, with, with mountains as a whole, a whole mountain range is a place of refuge, but then tucked in different valleys are different pockets of refuge, right? Okay. And it, it's a place of refuge for people too. Um, I live in a mountain region just north in a you know, three, four hour drive from people in Arizona and New Mexico and 10 hours from Texas. And those, those folks are looking for places that aren't as hot in the summer. And this is where they come, is the mountain region where I live. Um, so mountain regions are important for refuge. And then um, in that, I think they promote resilience. Mm -hmm. And a big picture, you know, where and what is resilience? Resilience means that as systems change as the earth changes as 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 change happens in our world um, we can bounce back we can bounce back the planet can bounce back we don't move into a state that is um tragically different fundamentally different from the state that 
that benefits more individuals, that benefits more species. And I think mountains are really important to that. So I also know that oftentimes mountains are talked about for the benefit of water supply, and they're mm -hmm. also important for that. And diverse sources, snow, glaciers, permafrost are all important for resilience in water supply. It's important to have water that isn't just rain mm -hmm. and mountains with their elevation and their, their complex climate zones create that opportunity to store frozen water. Um, so, so richness, refuge, and resilience are the three talking points that I always like to put forward for the question you just asked. Yeah, absolutely. Like most, um, like, like just before I was like talking to you and like making questions and like really diving deep into like mountains, I was just like, oh, there's some place where people can sometimes live and not many species really thrive there, but boy, I was wrong. <laughs> yeah. And then we have to see the mountains that are near us. So where you mm -hmm. live in Philadelphia, yeah, there are upland areas, right? So, mm -hmm. so mountains, we think big mountains, and I study big mountains because I like the big mountains. Um, but I also see an amazing amount of value to every hill that's near us. So, if it, so, so, so think about like, what's, what's a famous hill near you? Is there one? There probably is one, but I have, I, I, I feel bad about saying this, but I have not gone out for a very long time. I'm an indoor person and I, I have no idea. Okay, well, well, now you have a, a Google a Google Earth assignment. I'm yes. giving. Yes, I, I did. You didn't you didn't call me so that you could get an assignment, but I just gave you an assignment. <laughs> <laughs> Report back to me. What's the biggest the the, the an important hill? It doesn't have to be the biggest because big isn't important. What's important is what's a what's a highland upland area near where your home physically is, and then if you feel like going outdoors, walk to the top of it. <laughs> right. I think I know if you're allowed, like, if it's public land, mm -hmm, yeah. don't, I'm not telling you to trespass. <laughs> of course not. Of course not. No, I think there's like on the turnpike, there's like this blue mountain thing. I've got, we went on the turnpike a lot cause we moved here from Michigan. So we drove here every time. So I think there's like this blue mountain thing. Let me see. Please be. Yes. It's in Pennsylvania. Okay. Yes. I know. I'm not sure if it's on the turnpike, but, um, <laughs> okay, Blue Mountain. There's a Blue Mountain, and yeah, that's a mountain here. So. Well, there you go. You have some place <laughs> you need to go. If not, you know, if it seems safe, um, yeah. and and with that, I'm thinking COVID. Um, we're definitely mm -hmm. supposed to be staying close to home and not traveling too far, especially now at Thanksgiving. Um, you know, the goal is to try and be smart, be safe over mm -hmm. the holidays to minimize risk to other communities. So yeah, absolutely. So. Um, what question were we on? I'm sorry. I think we like diverted a little bit. Like, you asked me about mountains. Why mountains. study mountains? That was right. the last question you asked me. Right. I apologize for that. No worries. So, um, and then I, we were talking about like mountains are like resilient and all that. So yeah, absolutely. And I can like write out my window every, like for the last few mornings, there was like, it was like foggy. It was beautiful. The mountains were like, amazing um, they're 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 really nice here we have a nice view but yeah so like i told you i'm an indoor person <laughs> and um i'm wondering how do you like get to the mountain and like understand and and then and, and, like like the way you get to the mountain so basically like just give me like um a travel vlog <laughs> of how you get to the mountain what are some things that you normally like um measure when you're there and What's the whole process? Yeah. So 
I live on a hillside mm -hmm. at about 6,700 feet of elevation. And I can walk out my door and walk down the street and walk up to about 7,500 feet of elevation out my back door mm -hmm. on land that is the Bureau of Land Management managed property. So, so public lands surround me in the region where I live. Right. And um, to get to the mountains that I, that's all still low elevation for me. So for me, the places that I most like studying are above 11,500 feet in elevation. So I live mm -hmm. at 6,007. So I have to go 5,000 feet up in elevation. And right around 11,500 feet, 11,700 feet is where you get to an elevation that you start to see species you can't find anywhere else in Colorado. You have to get high enough up to a stressful enough climate zone mm -hmm. that the plants that are there can't live at lower elevations. They grow strategically. They grow super smart. They take years off and don't grow when it's really bad conditions, dry mm -hmm. times or really cold and piles of snow. Right. Um, and, uh, and so you only find them up in those places. So to do that, I um, have about an hour drive. So I do, I have to get my car. And this is from where I live, from my home in Durango. This is what we would do if I was doing a field trip with students from Fort Lewis. And we do do field trips up to the Alpine. Um, you know, we get in vans on campus and we drive about an hour and we get up to mountain hill slopes and we walk around and, and um, walk, poke. Poking is an important part of science. Mm -hmm. uh, I like to touch the plants, um, uh, touch the soil, um, poke into the soil to see um, if what I see on the surface, if there's any water with a little bit of depth, um, mm -hmm. scan and look across the land and then um, reflect on how different is this than other times that I've been here. Mm -hmm. And for someone, you know, say a student, one of my classes who's never been to that place, how can I help them more quickly grow into a space where they feel like they've been there before? Do you know what I mean? Because, yeah. because that's, that's where and how <clears throat> and some of what's intuitive to me become intuitive to them, both in what I do and, and, and what I've seen before. So I tell them stories. So a big part for me of teaching is telling stories about the past times that I've been in the mountains and what I've seen there. And, um, preferred to what I just described is uh, to be able to migrate. I'm a, as much as I live in the mountains and I live in a mountain community, mm -hmm. I don't live at my preferred elevation because there aren't many jobs at my preferred elevation. Right. <laughs> my preferred elevation is really high up in elevation. And so I migrate just like the other animals do um, when I can. And when I have the opportunity to move up into the mountains in summer, I move up into the mountains and I live at 9,500 feet. I've lived at 10,000 feet. Um, I started doing that as a, as a graduate student and I still get to do it sometimes. My children migrate with me um, and they have had the benefit of living on mountain hillsides for whole summers. And uh, they, they both love and hate it. Can't say that, that everything about a summer with mom in the mountains is what they love. And um, I'm fortunate enough to have a partner, um, a husband who um, is either able to join me for parts of the time for the, my seasonal migration, 
or <laughs> with the children and the dog, um, or he's tolerant, he's accepting, he's accepting of that. Uh, and I, I highlight that because I think that's one of the challenges that many women face in science is that the thing that we want to do that's the best for our career um, may conflict with what a partner wants. Mm -hmm. And I feel really lucky that, um, yeah, he's, he, he's known it. I never hid it. I never hid that I was a seasonal migrant, um, that I would go up in the mountains in summer. And um, that's been part of our 26 years of being a couple. So he sometimes comes with me and sometimes he doesn't. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's very, very cool. Because I was, I was, um, I remember going to, so we went to Hong Kong and we went to this like Victoria Peak, um, which is like, we, we, we hiked up the mountain. By hiked, I mean, my parents dragged me along. <laughs> and and um, we went there. It was very beautiful. Um, and yeah, I was just, I'm just recalling like walking around, like looking at all these like beautiful plants that were there that I would never see um, in the Americas. And I'm just like recalling these memories of getting a bunch of mosquito bites. But yes, mosquitoes yes. love me. I don't love them, but, but I, still it's beautiful. And I framed it to my children. I've used, so dragging along has, you know, I get it. I get why we use that analogy, um, but I've decided it's more follow along, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Because absolutely. it's not that different than what a mother duck does with her ducklings. Mm -hmm. She walks ahead. Um, the mother duck and the ducklings follow. And so my children are ducklings and they follow along behind me in the mountains. And I go ahead of them because it motivates them to go a little bit further than they would otherwise go. And, mm -hmm. you know, I always kind of know where they are. They're, they're, they're back there. I can tell where they are. And it's actually pretty funny to see where and how my children's thinking about mountains and exploring the mountains um, has evolved. They, we went on one hike this summer mm -hmm. where, um, they were the ducklings, they were hanging out behind, they were together, they're boys, they're 11 and 13. And, uh, and they had been having a conversation when they finally caught up to me, cause I slowed down and they caught up to me. Um, they were like, I was like, so how's it going? How are you doing? And they were just like, well, we kind of knew that we just needed to accept that we were going on a hike <laughs> and that it would be at least six to eight miles because that's how long my hikes are. So that's how long their <laughs> hikes are. And they said, unless there were clouds and thunder and lightning, and then we get to go back sooner. And that, that day, the reason why I'd stopped was because there was clouds and lightning and thunder. <laughs> and the, mama, the mama duckling had to, had to accept <laughs> clouds and lightning and thunder. And the kids only had a three mile walk. <laughs> oh, geez. But yeah, so now I feel like after I've learned more about the environment, I've become the, the, I don't want to say mother duckling because I feel like my mom's got that role, <laughs> but the, the, the duckling who just pushes everyone along. <laughs> you can be the lead duckling among your peer ducklings, yes, right? absolutely. And, and, you know, that's the other space that's really important is absolutely, as we start to learn a little bit more about the environment, there's somewhere new we might want to go. And when there's somewhere new we might want to go, we might want to have a friend come with us. And now suddenly you know, you're in that role of saying, no, 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 I know you wouldn't normally do this, but come with me, come down to the stream, come up to the hill, come out to the sea. And it's that opportunity to go someplace new and bring a friend with. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, no. So um, like I told you, I was doing research on like bivalves and this <laughs> is specifically in Newtown Creek. I'm not sure if you've heard of this, but it's like a super fun site in New York. Like it's very close to New York City. And there was like 
there's like oil, like I told you, the PCBs, PAHs, dioxidurins, pesticides, all this like, <laughs> there's so much contamination. Um, and like, there was like, um, there, they were just doing like lots of things. It, uh, back then it was like a hub or like just like um, a place to get out and transport everywhere. So lots of people were there. There were, there were like uh, the whales were coming in there so many things were happening there and we went there and I was just like well come on my mom and my dad were there and we were like come on we gotta go smell all the horror horrific smells that we want to smell because I really wanted to understand like what is going on here right it, um, awesome. it smelled horrible though I gotta tell you that <laughs> there yes. was a wastewater treatment plant there like an, it was like an egg thing but yes yep some it smells was, aren't good but they're there. They're part of the environment. We can put it in our field notes. <laughs> yeah. And we found new things that um, I don't think people have seen there. Like there was this, this, this white like um, discharge thing um, near like near the roadside. And this is the same Creek. So we, we were looking into that. I was, I think I was reporting it and whatnot, but that was just very cool how you're able to like move everyone along to like say like, okay, that's, that's strange. Maybe we should look more into that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're so, doing it too. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I hope to continue doing that for, for just like the rest of my life. Um, so you told me that um, you were in this documentary called The Leadership by the Homeward Bound, Bound. So like, has that come out yet? Or like, what's up with that? So it's released um, to cinemas in Australia, mm -hmm. and it's an Australian-based film production company, and the expedition leadership team is based in Australia, and we're still waiting to find out when the film will be released in the U.S., so it hasn't released yet in the U.S. I've seen the film, um, and I was on the expedition right. um, that got filmed. I am not featured in the film, so there are six women who are featured in the film, um, women in science um, and, and their stories. Their stories are powerful stories mm -hmm. of, um, not everything, I don't know if this is exactly the way I wanna say it, but of a culture in science that is not as supportive of uh, women and mm -hmm. in particular, women of color. Um, so when we, we see the added component of, of racism and sexism and systems that, um, that don't benefit all, um, we can see that the space is the least um, welcoming for women of color. And so, so for me, a piece of, of growing discomfort is that the opportunities I have had for my career um, 1986, when I'd tell people I wanted to be an astronaut, and I did that so that I could see the surprise because many women didn't have that kind of a career. Mm -hmm. The opportunities I've had to do what I do in large part is because I'm white. Yeah. Um, there's, there's that I'm female, but I didn't face the racism barrier that other people face. And so um, getting to where it's another thing that I speak up about um, at this point, I can't just speak up about the environment. I have to speak mm -hmm. up for where and how do we create the space where anyone who wants to be a scientist can be a scientist in a professional capacity as a, and, and have that career. And how do we make sure that we're having the right conversations um, at this critical moment 
-hmm. in American history where we can see the social injustice that's pervasive in our society. Absolutely. Uh, and so, so let's call that out. Let's see what and how we can improve at that because we won't have a sustainable world unless we also solve the, the, the racial injustice piece. Right. Yeah. It's very profound. And <laughs> I can't wait to watch it. I was just like watching the interview with the director or the producer mm -hmm. and um, she was very excited about it. And now I am. <laughs> so Good. let me know when that comes out. <laughs> Will do for sure. Yeah. And to just close up our conversation, um, what would you, if you, so, so there's lots of people in the world that are not able to, to um, I won't say not able, that don't think that climate change is because of us. Um, so what would you uh, tell them and like, try to like get them to like understand, like, cause, cause I remember you were telling me that people would like, might, might've said like, but it's not our problem of like, what, what, what's going on? Like, what would you say to them? Can you guess based on our, our conversation? Can you guess what I might do? And I don't mean to put you on the spot. Under, but, you would try to see their perspective? Yeah, <laughs> you got it. Exactly. Because um, at that moment of, of somebody saying they don't believe, they don't accept, they don't think anything should be done, any one of those three things, it's an opportunity for me to listen. Why? Right. For me to ask that question, why? And for me to listen. Um, and then the right moment to have further conversation with them is probably not right then. Yeah. It's, it's some moment when we find ourselves in the same space again. And I really do think that there's a, an incredible amount of providence in this world, an incredible amount of things happen for a reason. And um, with any, I love when I, when the circles, the circles that you, that you walk through the spaces that you're in, you, um, you find yourself in a space again with someone who you didn't have a good conversation with, mm -hmm. or that not everything that you would, it's not that it's a bad conversation. It's just that it's not all that you would like to have talked about. Right. Um, it, that, that not every point, um, an opportunity happens right in the moment and you wait and we, that, that opportunity to be patient and to find, spaces. So, I mean, I still have like this, like, I want to shout from the mountaintops because I study mountains. And so mm -hmm. I want to shout from the mountaintops. Now we have to act now. But I also know that, um, that that's not the right message for everyone at every moment in time. So mm -hmm. we can put that out to the world at large and then um, hopefully have conversations. Why? Why act now? I, I would hope that they would return the favor and ask me why act now. And um, there are some changes. My answer to that question would be there are some changes taking place on our planet um, that are um, put us in a trajectory of change for the next 200, 300, 500,000 years. We are mm -hmm. making 1,000 year decisions right. this week, <laughs> next week, this year. And, um, and we don't know that. We don't, not enough people know or see that, the people who mm -hmm. study these systems. And I don't study ice sheets, but when I talk to the people who study ice sheets, that's one of the parts of our planet that's changing in ways that it'll take a thousand years to, you know. And I use a thousand as a like, you know, ballpark number, not right. specifically a thousand. Right. One thousand, two thousand, somewhere on that time, not two, not 10. But soil we can put back on 10 year timescales. Um, plants we can put back this year. 
um, mm -hmm. and um, choices to have um, fewer plastic products in our home, we can do that this year. So there's some things we can do now so that the thousand years looks is, a, is where we want to be a thousand years from now for future generations. Yeah. And that is a perfect place to wrap up. And <laughs> is there anything else you would like to talk about? We covered everything? Yes. Absolutely great. So This has um, been really fun, Saranya. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so thank you so much for joining me and sharing your thoughts on climate change and how amazing mountains are, because I've really understood that now. And I've really appreciated it. <laughs> If you enjoyed this thrilling episode, be sure to subscribe to be notified when a new episode is posted. Don't forget to share women in environmental science with your friends and family so they can learn more about the problems that are being solved in the science industry. I hope you enjoyed this episode and learned about the work researchers are doing in this field. This is Serenia Nantapuntala signing off. Thank you for listening and I'll see you next time.